If you're a regular Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. We currently have 935 five-star ratings, and it would be great to get that up to 1,000. And I want to give a special thank you to Lieutenant Beefheart, who just gave us this five-star review. A must-listen for fans of sci-fi and fantasy. David Barkertley is an incredibly well-prepared and interested interview host. It's clear that he spends a great deal of time researching and reading the work of the guests that he interviews on the podcast, and it makes the show a rewarding listen. Look through the show archives, too, for a fantastic survey of who's who in genre fiction. The panel discussions are also thoughtful and entertaining. I highly recommend this podcast. It's always a highlight of my week. So big thanks again to Lieutenant Beefheart for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 445 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Brian Keating. He's a professor of physics at UC San Diego and co-director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for the Human Imagination. He's also the author of the book Losing the Nobel Prize, which argues that the Nobel Prize impedes scientific progress by encouraging competition rather than cooperation. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new podcast, Into the Impossible, which features interviews with leading scientists, intellectuals, and science fiction writers. And now here's our interview with Brian Keating. All right, so we're here with Brian Keating. Welcome to the show. Ah, uh, David, it's a great pleasure to be here. Okay, so how did you first get interested in fantasy and science fiction? I started reading science fiction uh, courtesy of reading science fact, science nonfiction, uh, courtesy of Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury. And I liked Isaac Asimov's writing in science nonfiction so much that I, A, started to read his works of fiction, and B, named my first child after him. So your first child is named Isaac? Correct. Wow. It could also be because of Isaac Newton, too. But <laughs> so for the purposes which, of this podcast, it's Isaac Asimov. So which exactly, which nonfiction and fiction of his did you start with? So he has a wonderful – I mean, he wrote 400 books, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> only some of which were nonfiction. But, of course, yeah, foundation on the on the fiction side but um, and his essays as well on the nonfiction side. He is one of the foremost expositors of chemistry, the history of chemistry, the history of physics and mathematics. And I just devoured every single copy I could get. And so much so now, David, uh, my oldest son, Isaac, is turning uh, 10 soon. And I'm getting him all of the books that I used to read, if <laughs> I can find them, from Isaac Asimov. I didn't keep them foolishly, uh, but uh, he's uh, he's one of my favorites. And then, of course, Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, so how did you discover Arthur C. Clarke? Well, I mean, when I was in high school, I probably watched 2001 more than a few times. And it was interesting to me in 2012 when the Arthur C. Clarke Foundation – approached two different universities, Purdue University and UC San Diego, where I'm a professor of physics, and they asked us to compete to see who would host the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. And we beat out those boilermakers. We <laughs> put a put a spanking on them uh, that they'll never forget. So no, we're very pleased that the foundation selected us to host the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. And over the years, I have uh, done a lot uh, for the fa uh, for the you know, center, so much so that I am now the co-director of the center. We do active research into imagination and to culture, and I started UCSD's first podcast, at least I believe it is, uh, called the Into the Impossible podcast, which you may recognize as one of Sir Arthur C. Clarke's famous three laws. Yeah. Okay. So we kind of skipped ahead a little bit there, but um. So, I mean, I, but I definitely, I mean, Arthur C. Clarke's stories like, uh, The Star and, um, The Nine Billion Names of God, those are the ones that really stick out in my mind. Yeah. Rendezvous with Rama, I remember reading a long time ago. Then there's, um, uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, 2001 is really, uh, is really the, the one that most affected me, I would say, as a, as a scientist because of his contributions to science or if you like engineering and his futurism. So he has a book, New Profiles of the Future, I think it's called. And that's a science nonfiction book. And I love that book so much so that we're trying to rekindle that in the form of a, uh, of a new sort of prize that we give alongside the Arthur C. Clarke Foundation Awards every year. 
And we hope to sort of develop that for the next decade of our hosting the center. Yeah, so I know you're a fan of, of Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. Um, were there any other science fiction authors that were a big influence on you or were you involved in, like, did you go to science fiction conventions or anything like that? No, I didn't do that until I moved to San Diego and went to Comic-Con. And I view, you know, comics as a, as a form of uh, science fiction, you know, kind of brought to the masses, so to speak. And I speak there every year at Comic-Con, at least I did and before COVID. So those are my first conventions. And since then, I've become connected to groups like the Golden Gate Garrison and all sorts of other entities that promote the work of real uh, science fiction geeks like, uh, I'm sure you know, Grant Imahara. Uh, I spoke with him a few years ago about uh, science fiction, science fact in the movies. And he was, of course, one of the Mythbusters, sadly, tragically passed away just about three or four months ago. And he was deeply involved with, uh, with, with Star Wars, which had a huge influence on my childhood. So I would say, you know, if anything, those movies, Star Wars and, and certainly Star Trek as a TV show influenced me greatly. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, I, I kind of, I didn't really understand there was a difference between science fiction and science fact, because, you know, if you take 2001, a space odyssey, they were talking about like video calls and, and stuff in the 1960s. <laughs> and so I just thought, okay, well, they, you know, had stuff and now we take it for granted. I've got a phone on my wristwatch and, uh, and, and it's just, you know, it's so, it's so magical to me to see how science fiction has become science nonfiction. And that's what delights me the most because, you know, most of my day now is spent reading uh, nonfiction, although I do have a close connection with a friend and former guest on the podcast, Andy Weir, who I know you've yeah, had yeah. great contact with as well. And he's a UCSD alum. He ne- Actually, he's not an alum. <laughs> he never graduated. <laughs> but he is uh, a former uh, UCSD Triton, and I've had the honor of interviewing him twice. And I love, obviously, I love The Martian, but I'm trying to get him on the podcast to discuss the the second book, Artemis, but he is so busy adapting that for a uh, major motion picture that he just doesn't have the time anymore. Oh, well. What was that group you mentioned? The Golden Gate something? Golden Gate Garrison is a group of, of, of uh, Star Wars enthusiasts who uh, typically will present at Comic-Con or do something at Comic-Con. And one of my close collaborators, Melissa Miller, she's a member of that. I guess it originated in the Bay Area where Grant used to live. And uh, I have a tribute to Grant from them that I posted on my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating. Uh, people are interested in seeing a tribute to Grant Imahara. So you say it originated there, but it's it's sort of spread out since then. I believe so. Yeah, I, I, you know, they talk, they do speculative kind of riffs on you know what would the zoology of star of Star Wars look like, you know, and uh, what would the flora and fauna look like, and they kind of uh, go deep in this in the fan. Fan nonfiction, <laughs> or fan fiction, rather. Now, it sounds really cool. So, yeah, so you, yeah, you grew up being interested in science and science fiction, and you're now a professor of physics at UC San Diego. Um, and then you're talking about, yeah, there's now this Arthur C. Clarke Center for the Human Imagination. So, like, go into that a little bit more. You said that they, they wanted, they, there was, like, this competition for where it would go. Yeah, so Sir Arthur C. Clarke endowed... Uh, a foundation that uh, was sort of enabled and acted upon his passing. Uh, I think he died in 2001 or maybe sometime around there, 2004. I forget the exact day that he died. But this foundation is run by, you know, a very elite group of, of people who run a variety of things, one of which are the Clark Foundation Awards. And just this year, uh, Lord Martin Reese uh, was a recipient. Fabiola Giannotti, who is the spokesperson for CERN, won it. And Ted Chang, who wrote Arrival. Uh, who's also been here at UCSD, uh, were the recipients of this uh, phenomenal award. And they wanted to see if they could encourage and develop and study the in, the enabling of human imagination in about 2011, 2012. So they set a competition to uh, to find an institution to host that would have our interest aligned with both uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke's interest in science fiction, science fact, and culture, and science nonfiction and culture. And so they selected, uh, they down selected to two different universities. Many applied, and we were chosen eventually to host it. And part of that came down to San Diego, UC San Diego's rich tradition with science fiction authors. David Brin is an alum. Greg and Jim Benford are alumni. Kim Stanley Robinson is an alumni, as I said. Andy Weir was a student here. Uh, and these are, you know, some of the, uh, the foremost, 
you know, writers of, of our time when it comes to science fiction. And so it was kind of a, I didn't feel like it was a fair competition. <laughs> <laughs> were you, were you involved in that competition? Like, yes, I helped to write the proposal uh, that was eventually selected. Uh, and we have maintained it, as I said, you know, for the past uh, eight years, going on nine years now that we're running it and trying to grow it. Right now it's led by my colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Eric Veery, who's an MD, PhD, a neuro, uh, neuroscientist. Um, and he has many claims to fame, but one of them was he was uh, Stephen Hawking's flight surgeon for the zero-gravity flight that Stephen Hawking took about 15 years ago to explore the majesty of zero-gravitational fields. And Eric's a huge sci-fi fan. He actually uh, spent time with Sir Arthur C. Clarke uh, back in Sri Lanka, where uh, where Clark ended up his uh, final days. Wow! And so those some of those authors you mentioned, Kim Stanley Robinson, David Brin, Gregory Benford, are they? Do they live in the area? Or are they kind of? Do they swing by yeah. from time to time? Um, yeah. So so of those, um, only David Brin lives in San Diego still, and he's uh, sort of a co advisor to the center. And uh, Kim uh, or Stan Robinson lives in uh, Central California, more farther up north uh, from here. And uh, the Benfords, I believe, live in the Bay Area. And they still write, uh, the twin brothers, uh, they still write science fiction. And we had an event here in January, right before the pandemic. It was really my last, you know, kind of live event for the Arthur C. Clarke Center, where we hosted several hundred people. And we had uh, Paul Davies of Arizona State University, who's a you know, tremendous uh, scientist and writer as well. And we talked about the possibilities for speculative kind of science fiction ideas like those of Sir Arthur C. Clarke, namely having extraterrestrials lurking in our solar system and where they would put such an object in order to glean knowledge, uh, conduct surveillance, perhaps extract resources from the Earth. Now, these are eminent scientists. This was Jim Benford, myself, um, Eric Veery and uh, David Brin, as well as Paul Davies. So we just had a phenomenal uh, uh, evening, and it really I'm wistful for it now because we haven't I haven't had an event in you know nine or ten months, and that's part of what gives me great joy is is sharing my love of science and science fiction, Arthur C. Clarke, etc., with the public. And we just haven't been able to do it, so I've had to turn more inward privately and do it via the podcast for the channel that I said is uh, called, uh, as I mentioned, is Into the Impossible. So if there were uh, extraterrestrial objects in the solar system, where would they be? So the um, the actual call out to Sir Arthur C. Clarke is that one of the best places would be on the moon, would be on the uh, Earth's moon, uh, other objects, because it would be undisturbed by – they would have to extract energy. They'd have to be close to a star, in other words, in order to harvest energy. And by the way, that brings up the concept of uh, Dyson spheres whenever I talk about – you know, Kardashev species or, or civilizations. I think about my late great friend Freeman Dyson, uh, who would speak here basically every every winter. He would come here from Princeton, from the Institute for Advanced Study, and he was an affiliate of the Clark Center. And he actually knew Arthur C. Clark, which is interesting. And uh, he was uh, participated in many events with us as well. And one of those we talked about Dyson spheres and so forth, which are his hypothesized way for civilizations to glean energy from a host star. And that was then um, connected to, in, in at least Benford's mind, uh, Jim Benford's mind, into this notion of, of how do you actually have a, have a time capsule, so to speak, that has to eventually wake up after lurking and then transmit its information back to uh, some either alien spaceship or back to its home planet. So one of the form, the most important need that it would have to sustain its uh, mission would be energy. And so the far side of the moon would be invisible to the earth and also, uh, you know, exposed to sunlight two weeks of every month. And uh, hopefully their battery technology is as good as <laughs> Solar City, and <laughs> they could uh, harvest that, store it, and then transmit information back to uh, to communicate, spread knowledge in some galactic civilization. But uh, that's kind of the optimist perspective: why they would do that? What's the you know teleological reason for it? But uh, in actuality, I think the conclusion that we've come to is encapsulated by uh, Paul Davies' book published 10 years ago exactly called the eerie silence in that he claims that we haven't heard from aliens because of a variety of different forces uh, that basically either make their existence impossible or makes our interaction and perception of them impossible so 
if they're lurking, we identified several places in the solar system where they might want to lurk. But one of the kind of fanciful science fiction ideas is that they're here, uh, but they're in the form of a microbiome that has uh, the opposite handed chirality to our DNA structure. And so therefore we can't digest them. We can't interact with them. We don't do experiments. The reagents don't react with them. And that's one of the more fanciful, um, you know, perhaps uh, concepts in Paul Davies' book, The Eerie Silence. So, so they would just be kind of everywhere around Earth and we just wouldn't really detect them? Yeah, it would be like, you know, they're a form of dark biological matter, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Huh. That's Yeah, I haven't read that book, so I'll, I'll be curious. I'll to read more about that. But I definitely noticed, you know, listening to your interviews and things that you seem to, you know, be on a first name basis with lots and lots of prominent scientists. And is that primarily through your involvement with the Clark Center that that's happened or, or through other things? I think, you know, one of the few good things to come out of the pandemic is, <laughs> uh, is that I've had access to authors and being an author myself, knowing the importance of book tours on uh, book sales, which are, of course, important to authors, but also in terms of sharing your ideas. I mean, people would trade, I've heard it said, you know, some authors would trade you know, a hundred readers tomorrow for one reader a hundred years from now. In other words, our ideas are what we hope will be permanent and will outlive us to some extent. A book is like a time capsule, like an obelisk and monolith in 2001. And that, you know, hopefully conveys and transmits information and values into the future. So I realized at the beginning of March that all my friends and people that weren't my friends were going to be writing books uh, that were due to come out that wouldn't have an opportunity to go on a book tour. And UCSD is a very prominent institution. Arthur C. Clarke's a very prominent name. And I started to just invite, you know, random people from different, different uh, circles. And by networking, you know, it's kind of this Matthew effect, the rich get richer in a sense that, you know, I got a couple of big guests and I get even bigger guests. And not, not to say that they're bigger or worse, better or worse, but just that they would have more readership. And, but I always also wanted to make sure I highlighted the smaller authors as well. My friend Sarah Scholes has written two great books, one called Making Contact about, um, about Carl Sagan, who I neglected to mention as one of the early influences on my science fiction, uh, career, so to speak, in the, in the nineties. He and his wife, Andrurian, who has been a guest on my show, wrote Contact. And then that was turned into a movie with Jodie Foster. Uh, but it was partially based on the life of a real person, Jill Tarter, who is a friend of mine who did endorse my book, for example. And she is the uh, Bernard Oliver chair of SETI at the SETI Institute. So I kind of been interested in these ideas. You know, SETI, is it science fiction? <laughs> you know, is it science fact? Is it hard science fiction? You know, it might be. And, and so these things have fascinated me for a long time. And just slowly, let me say, I had a connection to Jill Tarter. And then she connected me to this woman, Sarah Scholes, who wrote um, these books about her life and also about why people nowadays are seeing the proliferation of claims of observing flying saucers on Earth. And I did a podcast with Sarah about that. And uh, this, you know, and then she might have connected me maybe to Carl Sagan's daughter, who I've had on the podcast. And it just it just kind of blossomed from there. The network effect is real. Yeah, I was really interested to discover your podcast. Again, it's called Into the Impossible because, you know, I mean, for, for years I've been doing this and I've been interviewing, you know, people like Paul Krugman or Richard Dawkins or Daniel Ellsberg and, and asking them about science fiction, you know, and as far as I know, I'm really the only person asking people like that about yeah. science fiction on any sort of ongoing basis. So it's kind of exciting for me to see that you were interviewing. Yeah. And I like people across the political spectrum too, like from Noam Chomsky to Ben Shapiro. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was a really intriguing uh, project. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I say that my podcast is apolitical because I'll have equal and opposite, you know, political stripes on the show, you know, ranging from the far left to the far right. You know, I, I, I try not to give platforms to people who I find, you know, truly abhorrent, but I also try to talk about things other than, you know, other than politics with a politically minded guest. So I didn't talk at all about politics with Noam Chomsky and barely I talked about it with uh, Ben Shapiro, only barely, and in fact, talked more about science fiction with Ben Shapiro. And so, yeah, these things are very interesting to me. And, and you should connect to people like Sheldon Glashow because he's a huge uh, science fiction fan. And that was one of the reasons he agreed to come on my show. <laughs> so I'll definitely put a, 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 put you guys in touch if you're interested. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, we should definitely talk after this about, um, you know, um, contacts and stuff. But um, I did, you know, like I said, I listened to your interview with Noam Chomsky and I thought it was interesting because one of the things you ask him is, 
could we communicate with aliens? Um, could you kind of talk about what, what your experience was with that conversation? Yeah, so of course, Noam is best known for theories of generative grammar and linguistics as really starting the field. You know, every so the name of the podcast, let me step back. The name of the podcast is Into the Impossible, which derives from Sir Arthur C. Clarke's uh, three laws, one of which is the most famous of which, which I actually have the original recording of him saying that your audience will know is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So that's how I open all my podcasts. You'll hear his actual voice saying that famous phrase. Then his second law is for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. I like to tell that to my more egomaniacal colleagues whenever hmm. they think they're uh, browbeating me into submission. And then the third one is the only way of finding um, the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. So I usually ask people, you know, what did you once think was impossible but through your courage allows you to see that it was completely feasible to do. And in other words, kind of advice to your former self. And I asked that of all my guests and I asked that of Noam. And he said, inventing the field of linguistics was <laughs> something he thought was impossible. In fact, his publisher at MIT press, where he was a professor for, and has been a professor for 50 or 60 years, they refused to publish his first book on you know cognitive uh, linguistics. And so he had to overcome that seeming impossibility as a first-time author, not being able to publish with your own home university press. It must have been extremely uh, frustrating, but he persevered and eventually has become the world's leading cited intellectual in human history. Uh, and that's, that's quite amazing. And uh, so I asked him, it, a lot of his theory has to do with the, uh, with the import of physiological forces. So it's for to communicate, you need to have consciousness, which is something he's become more and more interested in. You need to have, um, you know, some kind of linguistic, uh, syntactical structure, vocabulary and, and patterns of, of grammar that are correct, et cetera. And, um, and he also popularized this notion that there's kind of a precognitive ability that infants pick up on very early to communicate using gestures. So some, some, I'm a parent, I don't know if you are, but, but, uh, you know, some of our, my kids could say things kind of like they could tell me that they were hungry when they were five or six months old by making gestures. And he popularized this notion of this long, long time ago. And I said, if, if, cause he believes that physiology is important to the communication process. So I said, let's say we communicate with my, my colleague, uh, Jill Tarter is successful. We can send a message not only to an, to an alien civilization, but a technological civilization, you know, that has iPhones or whatever, and they could detect it. So it's not just like a bunch of dolphins that are intelligent, but can't communicate technologically. So um, how would you do that if part of it is based on the physiological aspects of communication? And and so we discussed this idea of like, how would you build it up? And for him, it really boiled down to mathematics. And and once you built up a sufficiently rich and generative sense of, of uh, linguistic complexity based on mathematical in encryption of ideas, that you could essentially supersede these questions. Uh, of, you know, which side is your heart on? You know, is it on your left side or your right? Well, it's on my left side. Well, what does that mean to an alien who doesn't know what left or right means? So, you know, kind of getting into the richness of this structure uh, was really a fun thing for me to do, to talk to him about something that yeah, I don't think he's ever talked about. I mean, the way I read the what he was saying was, you know, I mean, because a lot of people would say, is it even going to be possible for us to communicate with aliens? Are they just their minds you know, having completely independent evolution going to be just too different and we won't be able to understand each other at all. And he seemed more optimistic that you would be able to communicate with an alien. He was saying, I, I don't know the, it was something about, you know, your, um, your language processing at some point is routed through your, um, motor cortex. I think he said, which, yeah. uh, puts it That's more a physiological in, connection. Yeah. Yeah. Puts, puts it, you know, linearizes it. And so he, he seemed to be saying that, you know, that there was a more, he was more optimistic about being able to communicate with aliens. Yeah. I definitely think that he thinks it would be possible. Uh, there's a famous parable, which I think I related to him, uh, from Richard Feynman, uh, which is that, you know, if you, if you develop a communication strategy with aliens and you're communicating back across the galaxy and you do describe to them, you know, when people meet, when human beings meet, they extend their right hand to shake it. Uh, he said, be very careful if they stick out their left hand, not because they violated the social conventions, but because they're likely made of antimatter and that the parity and charge of matter, uh, being inverts from ours, which is a hallmark of antimatter. So if they're made of antiprotons, anti, 
neutrons and electron and positrons that they would then annihilate you when you shook their left hand instead of their right hand. They would think it's their right hand because if you reverse charge and parity, then uh, most physical processes um, other than antimatter uh, reverse their properties as well. So I, I think I relayed that to him. And uh, I did speak about kind of a universal, uh, you know, because it's thought to be impossible to have a universal coordinate system. And I talk about this in my talk at the SETI Institute from 2016, that we might be able to do it using the topic that I study, which is the cosmic microwave background radiation. And that, of course, appears, I believe, in in, um, in the three-body problem, uh, whose author has been here at San Diego, now I'm forgetting his name. But Yes, exactly. Yeah. So he spoke uh, about a year and a half ago here for the Clark Center. And uh, I think the cosmic microwave background plays a role in that book as well. So yeah, so communication as terms of ordering, uh, it's very difficult to get things that are unique to the human body, you know, and I imagine if aliens were symmetric, you know, it might even be difficult as well. So those were some of the notions that we talked about as well as with, with Noam, as well as, uh, yeah, artificial intelligence and, you know, mind, uh, mind machine melding that Elon Musk hopes to do. Yeah. So I guess the big takeaway is if aliens want to shake hands, let someone else go first. That's right. Yeah. I, I, or just bow. <laughs> <laughs> None of us are shaking hands anyway nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that. I mean, um, I listened to a, a bunch of your interviews. Um, maybe I'll just I'll just quickly read the ones I listened to so people get an idea of some of your guests. So James Altucher, David Brin, Sean Carroll, Noam Chomsky, Sarah Fryer, Jordan Harbinger, Jan Levin, Heather McDonald, Annalie Newitz, Dave Rubin, Gad Sad, Ben Shapiro, Michael Shermer, Eric Weinstein, and Andy Weir. And I think it was in your interview with um, James Altucher, one of them, you said that you were actually a little bit hesitant to post the Noam Chomsky interview after you recorded it. Is that is that right? Yeah. So James is uh, this kind of um, intellectual gadfly. He's brilliant chess master. He started and failed and started again multiple businesses, made and lost $50 million twice in his life. Uh, and he's just an amazing intellect. Actually, I was talking to him before we got on the phone today. That was the podcast I was doing mm. uh, earlier today. We've ha- we're having a series where I made a claim on 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 his podcast, or maybe it was he was on mine, that you can't really do things in physics without encountering hurdles, barriers, gatekeepers. And he said, "No, I bet I could write a book about the Big Bang." You know, even as a layperson. And I said, "Well, you're on." And so we've been talking for the last four months now about alternatives to the big bang, but going deep into them, not just like, Oh, there's a name called the steady state. Now let's go on to something else. So he actually wants to understand at a deep level, what makes say a theory of cyclic cosmology of my friend and guest, Sir Roger Penrose. Why is that less likely to be correct than say the inflationary hypothesis that, that I've spent a lot of my career working on in the lab. And so, so he and I, um, we're talking about this and he said, I never publish an article or write, a, uh, do a podcast unless there's something in it that makes me hesitant to push the publish button. And this recently manifested itself, uh, around the world with an article that he wrote on LinkedIn called New York City is dead forever. Here's why. And over 20 million people shared it around the world. And then Jerry Seinfeld wrote uh, an anti-op-ed in the New York Times that got published. And it called James a schmuck and <laughs> and made it called him a putz, you know, LinkedIn putz. And uh, he's a loser. And New York's going to come back. And New York doesn't need you. So good riddance. Have fun in Florida. So it really devastated James on one hand. But on the other hand, you know, I said to him, like, be careful what you wish for. You said you were scared to publish. And this is one of the reasons that you should have been scared. And he's like, at first, that was that was the case that I didn't feel like I was competent, you know, to to like give this advice that nobody wants to hear. Um, previously, he had said things like that were controversial, like don't go to college. Here's 10 alternatives to college. He wrote a book called that. He wrote a book, um, you know, don't buy a house. It's, it's a waste of money. Here's why. And so he's used to controversial opinions, but this one was like touched a nerve around the world. And so, um, I was asking him, you know, like, you know, right now with Noam Chomsky, uh, so you see, there's an interview I did with Gad Sad where he basically, you know, calls Noam Chomsky one of the most destructive forces in the world. And, uh, because of the way that he looks at, uh, basically blaming everything 
on America and, and saying that the Republican Party is the world's biggest terrorist organization, uh, criticizing Israel at every possible opportunity. He's had a chance to do that. And um, again, I want to keep my pol- my politics out of this. I also felt like I've had people not come on my show, you know, because I've had like Ben Shapiro on, but I've never had someone from, say, the right or conservative perspective not come on my podcast because of uh, Noam Chomsky. So I wanted to explore that, like, but but I was a little bit afraid because what if this turns off, you know, what if Ben Shapiro, this is before I had Ben Shapiro on or Gad Sad, and I was like, you know, will this limit who I get to talk to? And I talked to Michael Shermer, who's a good friend of mine. I've been on his podcast. He's been on my podcast. I'm writing an article for his skeptic magazine currently. And he was just like, F them. You know, like if they don't want to come on, you don't want to talk to them. And I'm sure you've had this issue as well, David, where you're like, do I have somebody, let's say, you know, take someone who's controversial, Lawrence Krauss. I'm sure you know who that is, right? I've interviewed him. Yeah. Yeah. So you're really, you know, he's also very controversial, right? He's been, he's been, um, you know, removed from Arizona State University. There are certain allegations against him. I actually have known him. I get along with him, but you know, do I have, would you have him on your podcast again? Um, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't like, so should I do it? And I guess the question comes down to if you feel this feeling, like if you're nervous, it's probably going to create a good episode. Uh, that doesn't mean you have on, you know, like unrepentant, you know, child molesters or whatever, obviously, but it should, there should be some tension. Otherwise it's like, why are you so great? So I guess the question was that I was wrestling with that James and I worked through is just that it's going to be more interesting and it's going to be more actionable to my audience to hear things from people. Maybe they're controversial, but, uh, but if you try to please your entire audience, as you undoubtedly know, you'll end up being very, I don't want to say useless, but it won't be as powerful in terms of impact for the audience. And that's what you and I do, at least with our podcast hats on, right? We want to ask the questions the audience can't ask because they don't have access to these wonderful luminaries that you and I do. Yeah. I mean, I'm just sort of of the opinion that I want to interview the people that I personally think would be interesting to talk to. And I'm not so concerned really at all about whether I agree with them or not. But what if they're controversial like Lawrence? Like, would you have Lawrence on now? Yeah, I would have on pretty much anybody that I thought would be good content, you know, that would be intellectually stimulating. Mm-hmm. Would you have on somebody who's like a, not a creationist, but someone who believes in intelligent design, who's who's scientifically educated? I'm thinking of this guy, uh, Stephen Meyer, uh, who works for the Discovery Institute. He wrote a book called Darwin's Doubt. Um, he wrote, an, which is, you know, another bestseller. He wrote some other books, but it's basically about, you know, there are, there are lacunae in the theory of evolution. And now he's got another book about the God hypothesis, which opens up with a debate that he had with Lawrence Krauss and just their, their, you know, who's a, a an ardent militant atheist, self-declared. And, uh, and then, and then this guy, Stephen is, is debating him. And I just got his book in the mail. His publicist sent it to me. And he are asking me to write a blurb for it. And I'm like, you can't, you can't ask me to write a blurb and give me three days to think about it. <laughs> like it takes too much time, but I'm going to probably invite him on my podcast. Would you have somebody like that? Who's an open, you know, critic of not like denies evolution takes place, but believes that there is a role for a supernatural creator. Would you have him on your show? Yeah. I would, like I said, I would have on anyone that I thought would be interesting to talk to. I would never not have, not have someone on because I disagreed with them or because I didn't like them or something. I mean, I might not have on a creationist if I thought it would be a boring conversation and you yeah. know it wouldn't be that interesting to talk about but um if I thought it would be inter- if there was an interesting angle you know mm-hmm. I I would I, I there's pretty much no limit to who I would talk to I mean <laughs> that's awesome you know yeah. Do you think you could have done that? Like you're, you're actually a very extremely high rated, uh, you know, show on iTunes and, and you got a huge, huge following. Would you have felt that way when you were first starting out? Or is it because of your huge success that you can now have this license? You know, like Stephen Colbert can interview Donald Trump if he wants to and he won't lose his, his kind of credibility in the entertainment world. No, I mean, well, because I started this 10 years ago and, you know, I wasn't anybody really at that time. I mean, I had a couple of like short stories published and stuff like that. But we, you know, never shied away from interviewing controversial people from the beginning. I mean, I interviewed 
Richard Dawkins and Orson Scott Card. And I'm trying to think who else. That first. Would Wired ever, does Wired ever, because you carry their imprimatur. The only times I've done events, I did an event this summer with PBS, Space Time Studios. They have 2.5 million subscribers. And it was great. And we had, a, we had 400,000 people watched our episodes on Theories of Everything. But afterwards, they're like, you know, I suggested another partnership. And they were just like, well, PBS wants us to do a different thing. It wasn't like, oh, you guys suck. But it was like, you know, we just want something else. And they couldn't, they can't really fight against it because they're carrying the PBS name. Does Wired do that with you at all? Uh, at least so far, they've never, they've run all, every interview that I've done. Um, I, I, you know, like they have, um, they would certainly be, um, you know, well within their rights to decline one, but so far that hasn't happened. Do you ever worry that if it did happen that you are kind of on their platform? I'm sorry to make this so much about you, but <laughs> yeah. your your podcast fascinates me and we have a lot of uh, similar uh, guests. But um, the last question I'll ask is like, do you ever think about, you know, having your own brand, you know, so that you don't have to rely necessarily? Like, I think about that. If UCSD doesn't like that I have Ben Shapiro on on occasion or Dennis Prager or somebody like that, or Noam Chomsky for that matter. Um, you know, uh, they might say, we don't want you using the Arthur C. Clarke name or something. They haven't done it yet, but, um, do you, so, so I have my own YouTube channel, which doesn't reference, um, you know, UCSD at all. And I've got a lot of subscribers there. Uh, do you ever think about that kind of uh, parachute of uh, golden parachute? Well, the thing is that we, we started the podcast on, you know, John Joseph Adams and I started the podcast ourselves. And mm -hmm. so we have a, like a partnership with Wired where we distribute it through them. Mm -hmm. Um, but we own the podcast. So oh, if okay. they, you know, decided that they didn't want to run it anymore, we would just continue it, you know, the yeah. way that we always have been. So. Oh, great. Okay. Sorry for that detour, but you know, yeah. <laughs> I have on, you notice I have on a lot of podcasters on my show, on my podcast, and that's not an accident because I, I do feel like if I'm going to take this podcasting thing seriously, I want to study the craft of being a good interviewer, a good podcaster, et cetera. So that's why I do have on like Jordan Harbinger and James Altucher and Noah Kagan and other people, uh, that are, you know, preeminent people in the podcasting world. And even why I have someone like Ben Shapiro or Dave Rubin on, because they, they reach millions of people and it's not by accident. You know, no one's, uh, you know, just like they're not born on third base, so to speak. So anyway, that's just a detour that yeah. I do think studying the art of podcasting is an important skill. Well, Although, actually, sorry, go ahead. Well, actually on that, let me, cause you know, I had considered uh, interviewing Ben Shapiro and um, James Altucher. I actually saw James Altucher has a, a, a post he or did that was called like 11 science fiction movies that changed my life or something like that. Oh yeah. And actually, um, Ben Shapiro on in your, in your interview said, uh, quote, there's not much classic sci-fi that I haven't read. Yeah. So that seems pretty yeah. interesting to me. Um, he's a, he, I would say he's also a world authority or universal authority on star Wars. <laughs> he's incredibly opinionated. Um, and actually, you know, kind of like speculative with James, We've been talking about future, and I, I do think you should have him on for sure. I mean, he, he'll talk about anything, and he's, he's <laughs> just so brilliant. But we were just talking now before I got on the uh, on the call with you. We were talking about artificial intelligence and use of tools like GPT three and and other tools to um, to take podcasting to a true next level that broadcast media could never approach. Uh, just because of the, the, the nonlinearity that, uh, and the, you know, kind of parallelization that podcasting can afford. But w you should talk to him about that because he's actually, he's pretty knowledgeable about things like artificial intelligence and, and cryptocurrency. I mean, his first book he sold for, or one of his books he sold for a tenth of a, of a Bitcoin. <laughs> People made fun of him. Oh, that's only like five bucks. And, but he was on CNBC talking about why he's selling his book for a Bitcoin, you know, <laughs> and, uh, getting millions of dollars of free PR. So he, he's, he's, he's a really Really fascinating person. Yeah, I wanted to ask you the other um, one of the other conversations you had that really stuck in my mind is your conversation with Eric Weinstein, uh, where you asked which him one? I've had like five of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you asked him uh, basically, was the superconducting super collider uh, a big mistake? Mm -hmm. And he gave a passionate defense of it. Um, yeah, and so he was basically saying that if uh, Congress had funded it, you know, this is a big particle accelerator that never got built. Um, but if, if Congress had funded it, it would have sort of helped the American scientific community be co uh, to cohere and work together and, you know, uh, be ready for future scientific challenges that the nation might depend on. He, he sort of referred to the, to the physics community as like America's intellectual SEAL Team 6. And I was just curious, you know, yeah, what Eric your response and I to that is. 
Eric and I agree on 99% of things, I would say, but we disagree pretty violently there. Um, for one thing, as you'll hear in my interview with Barry Barish, the co-recipient of the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics, had the super collider not been canceled, LIGO might not have ever succeeded. And furthermore, he definitely would not have won a Nobel Prize, just speaking of Barry Barish himself, because we know that the actual history, not the you know counter, uh, uh, counter history or alternative history, uh, is that none of the experimentalists won the uh, won the. Uh, 2013 Nobel Prize for the discovery of the Higgs boson uh, at the Large Hadron Collider, the CERN's um, equivalent, or maybe not quite as powerful as the as the Super Collider was going to be in America. So they ended up doing it. It was yeah, it was 20 years later. Um, but you know, phys- physics has waited you know millennia to know about this particle's existence. There's no law that says it has to be done in my lifetime or my career. And furthermore, it freed up people like. Barry Barish uh, to work on pivot from the SSC to work on LIGO. And if he didn't work on it, it would have failed and they would not have detected gravitational waves in 2015, leading to his Nobel prize in 2017. So, um, and Eric is also, you should always know he's, he's very, um, he's very nationalistic when it comes to science. He views, you know, uh, bringing in foreign nationals into the United States to do projects for us as in, is almost unethical and immoral. Uh, on the other hand, my, I've had half of my students, uh, are, are foreign students, uh, and the grad and 17 graduate students that I've worked with almost half, I would say are eight or eight or so are, have been from foreign countries and, and they've been, you know, some of the greatest, uh, experience in my life of uh, working with people from these completely different backgrounds, Thailand. I've worked with students from Uganda. I've worked with students from, from China. And, uh, it's one of the most refreshing aspects of being a, a mentor, which Eric is not. Eric is not an academician anymore. He's not working in a university system, except when he comes down here and I've made an office for him and in my lab. And, uh, so he's outside the system. He does believe it's a corrosive force to have foreign students get educated and then go back. I know Ben Shapiro feels the same way and I'm completely, uh, in opposition to what, to this claim, because I think it actually benefits the U.S maybe more than it does uh, the foreign countries. And the proof of that is that, you know, almost half of Nobel Prizes in physics were won by immigrants. And so what if we had kept them out? You know, some of them stay and they don't go back. They're not all working as for spy agencies in some foreign country. Well, so you've mentioned the Nobel Prize a couple of times, and I wanted to ask you about that because I understand you're not such a big fan of the Nobel yeah. Prize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, so I am a practicing Jew, which means that I take yeah, the Old Testament uh, relatively serious in that I read it. I don't you know, go around pelting adulterers with stones, but I uh, you know, I'll keep kosher, for example, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe it's, uh, and I grew up though, I grew up either atheist or actually Catholic in my early upbringing. I was an altar boy in the Catholic church. I've had fair amount of exposure to different religions. And I've noticed that, um, when my co-religionists, whatever religion that was, Catholic, atheist, or, or Jewish, that, uh, they're very reluctant to change their religious philosophy more reluctant the later they got involved in their particular religion, taking it seriously. And I began to see a lot of parallels between uh, what I call the secular religion of Nobelism, which has all the features of a major religion in that it it has uh, it sort of has its idols, it has its saints, uh, the ones who win it. It has a high priesthood. It has sort of a Vatican City in Stockholm. It has uh, holidays, two holidays, you know, the Feast of Annunciation <laughs> when, when people are named Nobel Prize winners in October, and then the Coronation Feast held not on Alfred Nobel's birthday, but on the day he died, eschatologically so. Um, and then finally, just like religion I mentioned a minute ago, people are very reluctant to give up this religion. So why should people care about a three-inch diameter golden graven image uh, with a picture of Alfred Nobel on it? Uh, why should they care about something that's really determined by about 300 mostly you know, male scientists in Sweden? Like, why does that occupy the position even above SEAL Team 6, you know, kind of in, in Eric's mindset? So much so, I was just talking to James about this. We just did a podcast about the imposter syndrome. That was what we were talking about before you and I got on this call. And um, I mentioned to him that Barry Barish experienced the imposter syndrome. And I said, what are you talking about? You're like, he's, and he said, not only did I experience, I still feel it. I'm like, 
you won a Nobel Prize. <laughs> like, there's more people that have been to the space station than living Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> and, and he's like, when I accepted my Nobel Prize, I, I had to sign a book uh, that had all the signatories in it. Uh, when you, bef- you know, that shows that you got the medal and you got your certificate that's painted just for you. Uh, and uh, I looked pages and pages back and I saw Albert Einstein. And I said, uh, I saw his actual signature there in ink. And it shook him to his core with a feeling of unworthiness. And this is a guy who's made fundamental contributions to all of particle physics, the super collider, you know, CERN, whatever, as well as to LIGO, which did win a Nobel Prize. I found it so astounding. And, and I kept thinking, and I discussed this with James Altucher, you know, why is it? Why is it that someone can reach the highest heights, in this case, the Nobel Prize, and still feel inadequate? And I think it's, it, it comes down to, something that's very pervasive in science, which is this gatekeeping mechanism that we scientists like to be, you know, graded, judged, and so forth, so that we can come out on top. But once you reach the final judgment, there's nowhere else to go. You're not going to win like the super Nobel Prize, you know, like the intergalactic prize, you know, yet. Um, maybe the geeks guide can, can make well, a prize, but <laughs> actually, wait, 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 let me, let me say, cause it's funny. Cause you know, my, um, my dad at one point had fairly high hopes of winning the Nobel prize in physics and it never, mm-hmm. you know, it didn't happen. Mine too. And so when, uh, I interviewed my parents in episode 400 and I, mm-hmm. I awarded him the geeks guide to the galaxy prize in physics, I got a little like cheesy, um, science fair trophy with his name on it. <laughs> and I thought he, I thought he would be the only recipient, but then listening to your story, I was like, oh wait, I think I have an idea for who the second recipient of the geeks guide to the galaxy prize in physics could be. It turns out there's a lot of them, actually, David. There's uh, Lenny Susskind, who's an incredible physicist up at Stanford. He admitted that he felt the imposter syndrome even after he was a member of the National Academy of Sciences. This is one of the most popular. I don't know if you saw this meme on Twitter recently, like, the world would be better if if scientists ruled it. And it's pictures of, like, Lawrence Krauss, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Richard Dawkins, like, all the guests on your show. Uh, and Lenny Susskind is one of those people. Um, uh, but the point is, is, like, if we keep this myth up, you know, the Michio Kaku, you know, kind of whiz bang, the universe is a, is a wormhole in another dimension. And just, it just seems like impossible, uh, to, for a young person to ever get to that point. You know, Einstein wasn't always Einstein. And even these people who have gotten to this extreme heights, they don't even feel adequate. And so we would have more contributions. I think from a wider audience, if it wasn't, if it wasn't so, uh, if it wasn't so, held in this kind of level of idolatry, which comes back to the Nobel Prize. Well, I mean, I've, I've sort of been anti-award, you know, for a long time. I mean, just because it seems like, like you're saying, like, the award makes one person happy, maybe, the person who gets it, and makes everybody who doesn't get it unhappy. And it just, <laughs> like, you, we've seen even with, like, the Hugo Award and, I don't know, the Oscars. Yeah. There's Nebula, just an right. in- incredible amount of acrimony. And I, I do wonder if, uh, if, it's worth, if it's worth any of it. Yeah, I interviewed, you know, Frank Wilczek the other day and, you know, he won the Nobel Prize for something that he invented and discovered in, uh, in 2000, sorry, 2000, in 1973 and he won the Nobel Prize 31 years later. They say in some science fiction, uh, I'm sure you remember, but I don't remember, like, uh, there's a society, there's some book or movie or whatever, where, like you can't die. And like you don't die of natural causes. There's diseases cured and you can't die of any natural causes. So everyone's preoccupation becomes avoiding accident, like dying from an accident. Like imagine if I told you, Dave, you're going to win the, uh, you know, you're going to win the, uh, the nebula or he, whatever in 35 years. And all you have to do is show up. Like you, you know, you might totally you know, be driven mad by this. And I feel like, Frank overcompensated for it and, and he just kept inventing and creating things and he, he just knew it would happen. And so, yeah, like Woody Allen said, I wonder if you'll have him on the show, but he said, you know, most of life is showing up. And, and in that case, I think it was true for Frank Wilchay. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Before we run out of time, I had a couple other things I wanted to get to. So, yeah. um, I know that, um, UCSD also hosts the Clarion Writers Workshop. Yes. And I was just wondering, um, have you been involved with Clarion at all? I, I haven't been terribly involved in it. We do support it. We we have supported it uh, funding-wise, which is incredibly important. This is a project to bring together 
up and coming and sometimes mature science fiction authors on campus. And they do liaise and learn from people like Stan Robinson, David Brin, and uh, folks who are around. So it, it's, um, it's something I, I'm not super involved with since I don't write science fiction, but, uh, but I'm very proud to have it under the umbrella of the Arthur C. Clarke Center. Because you said to, when you interviewed Angie Weir, you said that you had some sort of aspirations as, as a writer. Oh, um, well, let's see. Uh, did I say that I wanted to be a science fiction writer? Um, I mean, I have notions of interesting plots for science fiction, but maybe that don't even involve necessarily that much science, except, you know, I have one that I even gave away in my book. You know, there's a restriction to only three Nobel laureates at most. So I envisioned a world where people invent like some, uh, you know, like CRISPR, basically CRISPR, which just won the Nobel Prize this past year in chemistry. And, um, and then there's four of them. And so one uses the, the CRISPR, you know, but it takes a long time and he basically causes, you know, one of the, th- three other people to die, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, in the super crisper, but also makes him live forever, basically. So that's, that's probably the extent of my current writing ambitions. I do have about four other books in various processes of, of uh, advancement, including trying to um, make, prepare, uh, produce the first ever audio book of Galileo's book, The Dialogue, which is one of the most important books in, in human history. Oh, it wow. has no audio book. There's no existing audio book. That's, can you say, could you say what any, of the, like any of the other ones are? They're all not like science books. Yeah. Yeah. They're all science books. So one is, um, a book, uh, you know, you must know who Tim Ferriss is in the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Remember, right? So he has a book called Tools of Titans and I'm writing a book called Lessons from Laureates or, um, Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner is what James wants me to call it. He, he wrote a book called Think Like a Billionaire based on all of his interviews with billionaires. And I thought I'd do the similar kind of thing based on the nine interviews I've done with Nobel laureates. And one, uh, actually, this is a science fiction-y kind of thing, or at least fantasy. I'm going to interview Marie Curie from Beyond the Grave in this book. It's very hard to, I want to have uh, several women in the book. And it's very, because of the Nobel Prize's sexism, uh, there are only two living Nobel laureates in physics. One just awarded a few weeks ago, my colleague Andrea Gez at UCLA, uh, and then Donna Strickland, who's in Canada. She's refused to come on the show, not because she doesn't like me or my book, but because she just doesn't do podcasts. And I haven't been able to get Andrea Gez. So I'm going to do a kind of pretend interview with uh, Marie Curie and having her guessing what how she might answer some of my questions, like, uh, how does it feel to go into the impossible? It's funny uh, on that, you know, one of my favorite authors, Roger Zelazny, and, um, you know, I, obviously I can never interview him because he passed away in um, 96, I think. Mm-hmm. But I did at one point find an audio interview with him. So I sort of fantasize sometimes about just editing in my voice. Asking that would be great. It's so cool. <laughs> no, you have to do that. That's the ultimate homage, right? I mean, you, these people like Galileo. I, I, I want to do an interview with Galileo. Like, good luck doing that for real. But I do, I had this conversation with Peter Diamandis, who's a huge science fiction fan and did know Sir Arthur C. Clarke and went to his, um, uh, went also went to his home in Sri Lanka. That, um, you know, he basically thinks the future is going to be what you just did. In other words, we're going to dump in your voice and uh, these authors' voices that you wish you could interview live but died when you were a kid or whatever, like me and Isaac Asimov. I mean, how cool would that be? You know, put that into GPT-3 and, you know, kind of see what comes out. Uh, I, I don't think it's that far behind. Yeah. Well, you mentioned David Brennan. That was another thing that kind of jumped out at me is he was saying that – and I hadn't thought about this, but, you know, with – um with COVID and Zoom and everything, you know, like, like for me, the, like COVID hasn't really affected me professionally at all because I do everything over, you know, the internet anyway. Mm-hmm. But he was saying that he makes a large portion of his income from public speaking and that that's obviously not happening right now. And he was wondering if public speaking, you know, if, if that might kind of dry up, uh, even after COVID goes away. Um, mm-hmm. if people, if, if so much stuff moves over to Zoom, will people be able to pay that? Uh, be willing to pay that same premium for a Zoom experience that they would for a, a live experience. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that. Another idea I've had that James and I have started to work on. Uh, one of the reasons that you should interview James is because you'll come up with like 30 business ideas uh, for your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but one of them is kind of like every week we have a colloquium here in San Diego or I get invited to give a colloquium in Cornell University. Okay, great. Now I got to get on a 18-hour you know, plane ride, <laughs> you know, three connections to get to Ithaca 
spend a night in a hotel because I get there at 11 p.m., speak the next night at 5 p.m., uh, you know, stay one more night because the last plane leaves at 4.59 p.m., and then get back, you know, three days later, I got a bunch of kids at home, my wife's all mad, uh, and I don't get any money for doing that. Like, I don't get paid for doing it. I do it because I love to, you know, share my ideas about science projects. This is technical colloquia, right? But I said, well, what about if we could just have everybody stay home and give the colloquium and then instead of paying the $1,800 travel hotel meal expense for Brian Keating to come to Cornell, just give me, you know, $400, which is more than I've ever been paid to speak at a university. Um, you know, I've gotten more for, for, you know, lectures to corporations or whatever, but not, not for a colloquium. I might get, if it's an honorary prize and I win a hundred dollars, that's great. I'll do it. I'll do it for free. But then you're giving remuneration to the to the intellectual content provider, plus the home institution saves money, plus you save on, you know, all this carbon emissions and waste and so forth. And, you know, I don't gain as much weight. And so <laughs> these are all like win-win. So I have an idea for basically an app that does just that, that like, you know, the colloquium app or something. And then, you know, I don't have to go to, to these places and they don't have to come here. And the beauty is there's 10,000 universities around the, around the country each one does the exact same thing we do at UCSD or Cornell does. And so there's like literally thousands and thousands of opportunities in every single department, not just in physics, but in chemistry, you know, biology, English, et cetera. And so I, I think to answer David's um, anxiety, I think there'll be other opportunities and we just have to figure out how to really make use of, of creativity that comes out of this, um, you know, by necessity out of this awful situation that the world is in. Is, is, is James Altucher, is that someone that you just have developed this friendship with as a result of podcasting, or did you know him prior to that? So we both spoke at TED San Diego, TEDx San Diego in 2014. He was the closing speaker. He spoke about his book, which is a, a multi-million selling book called Choose Yourself. And I always liked his work even before we met at that event. And then I lost touch with him for five years. And then... um I don't know how much time we have left, but there, this, the, I do want to say this because I think it's important for scientists and even people, um, who aren't scientists, but are in the technical. I imagine a lot of your audience, like mine, is very technically minded engineers, scientists, um, you know, con con people that construct things and do things. Um, and, and so I think this advice will be interesting to them. I, ended up um, going on my very first podcast when my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, came out in 2018. I was invited on a podcast called Man Talks. Um, have you ever heard of that? <laughs> I can't say I have. Okay, so it's it's actually not racy at all or whatever, but they were using not Zencaster, which is the software that you and I are talking on, another competitor. I won't say the name of it. And we record this awesome interview. At least I thought it was awesome. I had never done a podcast before. And it felt really good. The guy, Connor Beatley, Beatley, Healy is a, is a good friend of mine or a good friend in the podcast world rather. And I just felt a great rapport with him. He's a great interviewer. And I was super happy, said goodbye, closed up the computer and walked away. And what's the danger in what I just said as a professional podcaster? What did I just say that raises your hair maybe a little bit? Well, you didn't wait for it to upload. Yes, I, I closed yeah. the laptop. <laughs> so weeks go by and I'm like, I can't wait for this interview to come out. Tell my wife, tell my friends. It's going to be <laughs> okay. my first part. And weeks go by and I'm like, Connor, where is it? And he didn't answer me. I'm like, oh God, what happened? Um, and finally I just wrote him. I was just like, be honest. Did you delete it or did I screw up? And he finally wrote me back. Yeah, I'm so sorry. This, it feels like it's unprofessional, but like, I guess it didn't record. Maybe one of us closed the lot, closed up the computer. And I was like, shoot, I can't do that. <laughs> and he's like, um, would you mind? I know you have, your time is so valuable. You got a bunch of kids. I just had twins that were born like a week before that. Uh, so I was pretty busy and the book came out, which is super busy time for an author. And he's like, can you come back on? We'll make it short. We'll try to rep reproduce the magic. And I could have said, no way, screw you, man. Like, like you wasted my time. Do you know how much I get paid? You know, $30 an hour, uh, as a public school professor, you know, whatever. I could have been mean about it. I was just like, no, I get a chance to talk to like a cool guy. That's, that's really interesting. Curious about my work. Why would I say no? Okay. So we recorded again. The podcast comes out, gets a hundred downloads or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, but then a year later, I get an email from him and on it is copied Jordan Harbinger. And do you know who Jordan Harbinger is? Well, yeah, I listened to your interview with him, yeah. Yeah, so he's like, he had Apple, one of Apple's 2018 best podcasts, top 10 podcasts. He does like an all, a kind of a variety show, talks to like Kobe Bryant one week or did, uh, and then talks to like some Chinese spy the next week. 
just a fast then general Petraeus and then Ray Dalio. Yeah, just an amazing. And he had um he copied Connor copied Jordan and I introduced us, which you should never do, by the way. You should never uh you should always have multiple opt-in before you send an email to somebody. You should always make sure both agree to being introduced to each other. That's a t- networking tip. But this guy Connor didn't do that. And uh Jordan wrote me back and he's like, Yeah, I checked out your book. I'd love to have you on the show. Um and fill out this form. And I fill out this form and we did, uh, we ended up doing it. It took two years to do Jordan's show. <laughs> so I just did it this past, uh, this past May or whatever. I was on his show, got a huge amount of attention. The book sales went up, but I said, Jordan, that's all great. But what I really want is to, um, is to get a connection to one of your close friends. And he's like, uh, okay. And I said, James Altucher. So I'll, I'll never ask you for another connection again. And he did. And he introduced me to James and did the double opt-in introduction. And then I got in touch with James. And since that time, I've done 14 hours of podcast with James Altucher. Plus, we've created a new business, which I don't want to get into. But we have multiple business streams that we're thinking about. And we're actually actively working on. We're writing a book together. And uh, and all this came about, David, because I wasn't an a-hole to the guy who like kind of fumbled that first podcast. And so the lesson I'm trying to communicate is that the soft skills of just like being grateful, um, uh, cultivating your network, those are so much more important than knowing like how to derive some third order correction to a Feynman diagram. It's not even funny. And so one of the takeaways I want is, and that's why I do podcasting, to be honest with you, David, is it helps me to improve my not so great skills when I have people on or I talk to people like you who are doing this professionally. If I can try to approximate your level of professionalism or, you know, or Jordan's or James's, it's going to only make me better at communicating with introverted, maybe inaccessible, maybe disconnected emotional scientists that sometimes I have to convince to join me on a world changing adventure in scientific experimentation. Well, and I really feel for that guy because, as you know, I have five recordings going here, and I'm <laughs> just know. praying one of them, you know, comes through. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing two. Um, but yeah, so I guess probably my last question will be: just in one of these interviews, you mentioned that you have a billionaire patron, Jim Simons, who you say is sometimes referred to as the world's smartest billionaire. And I was just wondering, how do I get a billionaire patron? That sounds <laughs> like a handy thing to have. Yeah. So what you have to do is come up with an experiment uh, that can satisfy the billionaire's interests uh, and and um, has a price tag of that level. So he's not a Patreon supporter. <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, that would be nice. That's that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Get the billion. You know. Get the, choose your your pay your monthly donation level, <laughs> uh, which I am going to do for you by the way, because uh, I love your show oh, and oh, I advise you. everybody to do that. I haven't decided to do that. I'll, maybe you and I could talk about that some other time. Uh, like the impact of advertising on your audience because I'm starting to get approached by some pretty big name advertisers. I'm like, does my audience really want to hear my endorsement of manscaping or, you know, whatever. Uh, but let's talk about that some other time. Yeah. Uh, but getting back to, uh, to Jim Simon. So he, um, he's played a, a role in my life since before I was born. Actually, he and my father, James Axe, were um, close uh, partners in the mathematics department at SUNY Stony Brook, where I was born. And they uh, developed many great, uh, you know, kind of uh, projects together in, in mathematics. And then Jim later, both my father and Jim took an interest in physics and their work that they had done in pure mathematics eventually was found to have deep implications for physics, especially Jim Simons, uh, who uh, for technical reasons, what he's best known for in math is something called the Chern-Simons form which has to do with certain properties of surfaces and different dimensions um, uh, that actually has an application to fields in physics like string theory and in the study of the propagation of polarized light in the universe, which is where I come in. So I started to talk to him uh, about 10 or 12 years ago uh, after my father passed away and, and we started to co- you know collaborate on ideas to test essentially different ramifications of Jim's purely mathematical theories, but applied in physical situations using the laboratory uh, of the entire cosmos to experiment and understand properties of fundamental nature of particles and forces at small dimensions. And so this is what we're doing with the Simons Observatory and the Simons Array. And he's uh, funded both of those uh, as a major backer along with the National Science Foundation. And the latter one, the Simons Observatory, is under construction now at 17,000 feet in the Atacama Desert of northern Chile. And every week or so, I update Jim on what we're doing with the team. 
And uh, we're making great progress. But of course, you know, COVID's really challenged us. And Jim keeps reminding me how old he is every time we talk. Uh, and that he'd really like to win a Nobel Prize before he dies. So I found it very interesting that one of the world's richest human beings uh, has something that he can't buy, which is the Nobel Prize, which I think speaks back and calls back to what I was saying before about it kind of being an idol, a kosher idol in a certain sense, that it's okay to worship because it's for the betterment of mankind, as Alfred Nobel so aptly put it in his last will and testament. Yeah. No, that's all super cool. Unfortunately, we're, we're totally out of time, so we're going to have to wrap things up. But I mean, do you, do you want to just um, finish up by saying, do you have any uh, future plans for Into the Impossible or final thoughts or just any other projects you want to let people know about? Yeah. So on the Into the Impossible podcast, which is on uh, Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube and um, and on uh, Apple, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts, Into the Impossible, I am trying to conduct a survey of the greatest minds uh uh, that have influenced me from Nobel laureates to businessmen and women uh, to, you know, people that have written the stories of the founding of Instagram. What lessons can I learn from them to deconstruct the, the kind of uh, formerly inscrutable nature of creative types, especially in science? Uh, because I think that science has the greatest possible um, story to tell but we're the worst possible advocates for our own position. And that I really want to make science as interesting as science fiction. In other words, that sort of unput downable as the Simpson, Homer Simpson used to say. Um, so that's my goal. And uh, I've had a lot of luck with a lot of Nobel Prize winners coming on and a lot of great individuals, uh, men and women from around the world. And so stay tuned, uh, 2021. I've got so much more on tap. And the greatest thrill that I've had is having people that have won the Nobel Prize asking to come on my show. Uh, so that's been great. And uh, it only rivals coming on the Geek's Guide to the <laughs> Well, yeah, no, I think it's a super cool project that you're doing. And it's just fun for me to have another person, you know, in, uh, interviewing these uh, leading intellectuals and asking them about whether they like science fiction and their science fictional ideas. Um, you know, that's really, you know, I, I've been doing Geek's Guide because I, I really – thought there should be stuff like that out there. So I, now I don't feel so alone. So alone Maybe I'll universe. have you on the podcast next year. Would you be willing to go into the impossible with Brian Keating? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. No, that would be that'd fantastic. That would be so much yeah. fun. All right. All yeah, right. stay tuned. Big, big plans coming up. Crossover episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're all out of time for today. So we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Brian Keating. And again, his podcast is called Into the Impossible. So Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, David. It's been a great pleasure. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Brian Keating for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.